Welcome to the K2 Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Kelly. Every week, I'll be sitting down with a sales executive where they'll share their stories and experiences that produce game-changing results. Let's be honest, sales can be a tough game. I'm sure at some point, we've all delivered a less than stellar demo, been ghosted by a client or two, and sometimes maybe we did more talking than listening. And that's where I can help. The stories and insights our guests share can be applied to your own business, your territory, or with your team, so you're not reinventing the wheel. Our weekly tactics and strategies help you get out of your head and start creating your own path towards game-changing results. Welcome back to the K2 Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Kelly. Now, with October being Women in Sales Month, we continue interviewing women on the K2 Sales Podcast to, again, increase visibility, awareness, and get our voices out there. And this week, I had the pleasure of having a conversation with Sandra Beckhor of Beckhor Management. And Sandra works with small to medium-sized companies, uh, professional services. We talked about, you know, architecture, lawyers, medical companies, and really the importance of when you're a solo entrepreneur or you're a small business, the, you know, we're wearing many hats and oftentimes we find ourselves working in the business, not on the business. And one major component that sometimes gets missed and a big one is selling and sales, whether you're dealing with lawyers or architects and they went to school many years. They're very um, effective, very knowledgeable in their craft, but how equipped are they to sell? And we talked about the importance of the language. And, you know, sometimes sales is a trigger word, but we also shared the more we understand about what this word means allows us to know what our role is, how we need to show up for our customers. And, you know, really just having conversational tone and disarming and being vulnerable. And again, depending on the nature of the industry we're in, that might be hard for us. But when we can disarm, when we can connect with our audience and truly make it about them, any discomfort we had, it, it starts going away because a, we're not talking about us, but we're just leaning into our curiosity. We're just learning a little bit about them that organically they're going to turn around and say, well, what, how do you help or what is it you do? And so then we have the right, we've earned the right to share what it is we do, but we're not leading with it. And sometimes that salesy, pitchy, you know, in your face, that's what makes people feel uncomfortable. Well, yeah, because it's not natural and nobody likes it, but if we can reverse it, and even adopt a mindset of, we're here to understand uh, a little bit more about your business, um, who you are, and even if we're in a position to help you. And so we're detaching from the outcome and we're really just in the moment having a conversation. And so when you can do things like that, it's a completely different experience. And so there's, there's awareness that we are or are not doing that. There's perhaps an opportunity to reflect and look at when we did this or didn't do this, what were the outcomes? Because if we can see the data and we can measure what we're doing and its impact on our business, chances are we're going to move through the discomfort a bit quicker if we can see that it's correlated to revenue. So, you know, this is a great one to listen to. Sandra gives lots of tactical strategies to, to put in place immediately. And one of the things she said, which I love, was just... If you're an entrepreneur and you're frustrated and you're bogged down in, in your role, you know, can you write a future job description for yourself? So where do you want to be? What do you want to focus on? And, and really what that allows you to do is kind of see that before and that after state and truly look at what part of my responsibilities do I want to continue doing? What do I want to let go? And where do I need to add to it? 
And I think when it's written down, it makes it easier for us to align to that future state and start making that mental transition. And it makes it easier to leave the past behind that no longer serves us or that's a $5 job. And we're not, you know, we need to be looking at the $500 an hour jobs. So highly encourage you if you are in the professional services, whether it's architecture, law, healthcare companies, or you're a solopreneur, you know, Sandra and I discuss many tactical strategies you can apply immediately, mindset hacks to really get in front of it and realize, you know, selling, it's what keeps the lights on. So the quicker we can establish a healthy relationship with it, the quicker we can see our business turn around. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, I encourage you to do that. Also, We'd love some feedback. So if you would like to leave a review, we would encourage you to do that. Again, allows us to increase our reach and continue inviting great guests on the podcast. Thanks for watching, everybody. And we'll see you next time. So I'm delighted to be speaking with Sandra Beckhor, who is the CEO of Beckhor Management. And Sandra focuses on small to mid-sized professional service firms. So first of all, Sandra, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Karen. So where I really wanted to get your expertise of having been, a, you know, running your firm for over 17 years is just understanding, you know, your focus, um, it, and I'll allow you to elaborate on this, but it sounds like it's more marketing and leadership. So why don't you just, I guess, start by telling us a little bit about what industries do you serve and, you know, what do you do for your clients or what problems do you help them solve? Sure. Thanks for the warm welcome. I work with small to mid-sized professional practices lawyers, architects, and other professionals on everything from marketing to management of the practice. And so in a small to mid-size uh, context, the owner has to do everything. You know, they wear a lot of hats. <laughs> so marketing and management comes up every single day. And basically what I do is help them get back in the driver's seat and in, in the bus. So they're not a passenger on their own ride. And, you know, I can imagine, well, before I ask a question on that, what industries in particular do you focus on? Well, all professional practices, but for the most part, uh, law firms and the building sector, those have been our biggest growth areas. I actually have a background in architecture. I studied architecture before the MBA and <laughs> my spouse is a lawyer. <laughs> so, you know, he's actually the reason I started this business. I got the idea from doing some work for his firm when I was still employed at my last job. Yeah. So, uh, so law firms is a, is a big area for us. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you're talking the talk both with your architectural background and your husband. So you're really in a, in a, a great yeah. spot to help others because it sounds like you have some histories and background and you're, you've been immersed in their culture and environment that you know what some of those problems are. Yeah, it, it does. It feels a bit personal and it feels circular in some ways. You know, I went back to my, my grassroots with this business. Yeah, I love that word circular. I'm just thinking because it just I was talking about this yesterday with my friend, actually, and just that no end, you know, and it's just it's always evolving, always growing. And, and thinking back about your grassroots, think about where you are today and, and when you jumped off and just how much things have changed, how you've evolved, how perhaps the problems you're helping them, your customer solve back then are different now or, or maybe or are they different? They are, and they keep changing before our very eyes. It's incredible. You know, when I started this business, we would do um, marketing and strategic plans for three to five years. And now that is just, I wouldn't touch that. It's, it's like one to two years. Okay. And even that is a stretch. <laughs>
And so what do you mean one to two years? You, you're employed or consulted for one to two years by your clients. Oh, uh, no, let me clarify. So when, when we work on developing a marketing plan or a strategic plan or a succession plan, you know, something for the, for the growth of the firm, the time frame for that plan, the action plan used to last for three to five years. So you would be looking ahead to the future of that firm three to five years ahead. Mm-hmm. And now that's just an impossibility. Three to five years is like a lifetime for the practice. Mm-hmm. So now what we do is for those, you know, those types of plans, we look ahead one to two years. And is that, Sandra, just for our listeners so that, you know, it's more attainable. There's so much out of our control. There's so much change that we can kind of only scope out what's what's realistic and what's within our, within our reach. Exactly. And so you'll be wasting your time if you look too far ahead because you really don't know what's coming down the pipeline, not in the profession, not in the marketplace. Um, you're really better off to put your efforts into the here and now. It sounds like agility is, um, you know, a key strength for, I guess, your customers to be able to AC, not too far, but the, the now to the medium, but also be able to pivot if there's something out of their control that is coming or they're getting wind of so that they can kind of ride the waves a little bit. Well, exactly. And that's the magic. So it's, it's not in the original planning, the heavy duty planning that's, you know, the magic. The magic is keep the planning alive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some firms, they have partner meetings every month. And if what you do is you just bring an element of planning to that monthly, make it make it a continuous exercise. There's more value in doing that than doing this long, extensive planning exercise for three years, you know, three years ahead. And you've seen kind of the light, seeing that it's, you know, one to two years versus three to five. How many of... Other, you know, those small to medium-sized companies are still operating in that three to five-year plan. They're not. <laughs> Actually, I think a lot of firms don't know how to approach planning at all. And and I think they're overwhelmed by the speed at which world the world is changing around us. Mm-hmm. And I would suggest that just because you can't plan for three to five years ahead from now, there's still value in doing planning. Just think about it in terms of a smaller cycle. And so for those customers or, or those companies, Sandra, who aren't planning small or medium or large, you know, what's the impact to them? What, what, what are they missing out as a result? And, and are they aware that they're, they're, they're missing out on things? I think some of them are aware and they feel frustrated because they're very, you know, they're like the mouse on the treadmill <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's every day for them. So they feel like they're so busy running their practice they can't think about their practice. And I, I have a lot of, you know, clients that start with me by asking, I want to change my own job. Like that, that really is their biggest problem. So this is the owner stuck doing the same thing day in, day out for years. And they're ready for something new, but they don't know how to make that happen. And, you know, they really do need to, at that stage, they really do need to do the planning. Otherwise things won't change. Yeah, it sounds like that classic working in the business versus on the business. Exactly. And unfortunately, that will keep you, it will keep you stuck in that hamster cage. But um, even when they're bringing someone like you and Sandra, I, that awareness, I mean, it sounds like that they're, they're frustrated, as you mentioned, they're aware, but do they even know where to start? No. <laughs> I have some simple exercises that actually can get people going who are in this kind of situation 
just, you know, one, one simple one, it's kind of fun to use your imagination, write a job description for yourself, for your future self. Mm. So you know what you do today and you know that you don't really want to be doing exactly that, but without any kind of restraints at all, unfiltered, write a job description for your future self. And then look at the difference between the two and start getting a little more practical. Okay, how can I overcome some of these gaps? It'll give you ideas about what type of planning is necessary. You know, whether it's hiring or getting some tech involved or training yourself, getting rid of an area of practice, getting more specialized, whatever it is, doing more marketing, you will get insights from that exercise. I love that because it really does highlight that before and after. And I think there's something when we write it down, you know, where there's, it's more visible, it's concrete, and we see, it's like that food journal. When I see a Snickers bar, <laughs> I can't get around, like, there's a reason why I'm not hitting my goal, because I have to write it down. So I might be more mindful of, of what I'm doing. But I think when they see that they're doing perhaps these meaningless tasks or these $5 an hour jobs, it makes it very easy to go, you know what, I need to cut A, B, and C. And it is a simple exercise, but it sounds like it would be very impactful. It's very impactful. It's empowering too, mm-hmm. because then you stop seeing yourself as stuck. When you are the author of your next job description, <laughs> yeah. you are powerful. Yeah, I love that empowering because it, it, I think they almost create a new identity for themselves. They let go of the old and they're like, I want this. And then they can start aligning their actions, their thoughts, their behaviors with this future self and leave the old behind. Yeah. And and keep what they liked from the old. Yeah. They're not all going to look the same. These job descriptions for your, your next version of yourself, even though you have a similar job title to someone else, it doesn't mean that you, you want the same things as that other person. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. Your, your defi- definition of success could be different, right? And as right. a result, your job description is going to have different activities ar- around it. And that actually reminds me of another um, s- sort of simple tip that can help people get their imagination going. Uh, it's to look around for role models. You know, and, and, and sometimes we don't see we don't see what we want to become around us. And, and that actually reinforces the stuck feeling. You know, and I know you mentioned to me, it's uh, women's women's month and we're, (laughs) you wanted it. Women in sales is October. Yes. Women in sales. Yes. And, uh, and, and sometimes this is a, a female issue, actually, you know, if you're a professional, you're looking to achieve more in your, in your specific sector, and you're not seeing female leaders out that represent exactly what you're trying to do. It may, it, I have seen this with clients. I have seen this play out with clients where they feel like limited. Mm-hmm. I can't break through this glass ceiling. I can't become a rainmaker. I can't this, I can't that because, because I'm a woman and I'm not seeing other women doing what I want to be doing. Well, they're out there. Go find them. And when you find them, you're going to feel like you have more opportunity. Yeah. And it sounds like you're one of them that they can, they can, well, they can look up to you. You are a voice, you're empowering and you're recognizing that. Yeah. If you, I grew up like that. I didn't see any women. It made it, you know, seem like that this is where I'm going to be my whole life. And it's just a male, a men's world. 
And so some people could either take that as I'm out or, you know, I just, I guess I have a, a higher threshold of <laughs> I can plummet through things and forge my way ahead. But I think over time you just stop caring and you find, as you mentioned, someone else who's doing it and it might not be in your organization or your industry, but just find role models, mentors out there that are her doing or have achieved what, what it is you're trying to. Right, exactly. You don't even have to necessarily have a relationship with those people. You could, and that might be wonderful. But even if you don't, just their very presence, read their biographies, watch their videos, see what they've done, and look at look at the history of how they got there. Mm-hmm. Because that'll give you ideas about your own next steps. And that's the, that's the beauty of social media and Instagram and all these, you know, influencers you've never met them, but they've gotten us through perhaps difficult times in our personal life, or they've helped us, you know, climb that next milestone in our corporate, you know, where we're trying to go corporately. And and a lot of people have done that for me and I've never met them. Well, I think you're doing that with this podcast. Well, thank you. I, uh, I hope so. And it's people like you that we can bring on and a lot of our guests that really highlight an important issue and in this case it might even be an awareness for some in that you know I'm aware that I'm working in the business not on the business as as a strategic visionary or the founder but I'm unaware of how to get started and even that I'm unaware of how to separate my separate myself from where I am to where I want to be because it's so we're, we're chained down and when we think about even as you said you know I think our focus is where we don't want to be versus where we want to be. And so then we're limiting ourselves. We're perhaps seeing, we're perhaps hearing a story in our head that we can't do. And it invites us to stay where we're at. Yeah. Yeah. We believe our own stories. Yeah. And so Sandra, in your practice, you focus on marketing, you focus on leadership, coaching, and consulting. Um, how, what what is your what are you seeing in terms of sales strategies or sales initiatives in these small to medium sized companies that you either work with or just that you're seeing out there in the industries? It's not a word you hear often, um, you know. Sales and professionals are comfortable with you know putting whitewashing these things. So so they've got words like business development. Okay, they can say business development. They can say rainmaking. But sales, no, I think that makes them a bit crazy. So that doesn't mean that there isn't a role for sales in, in running a professional practice. In fact, it's one of the things that that is necessary to be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's required. It's what kind of keeps the lights on. And, yeah. and, when, and when you say the, the relationship, is it a trigger? Is it the word itself, Sandra, or is it what the word represents? I would say it's both. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say it's both is because it's not just that they won't say the word, but they also won't dig into it. And, you know, and I don't want to make it sound like that's true for everybody because there are actually some professionals who are naturally good at this and who embrace it. They're just, they, they, you know, they, they just are, they're good relationship builders. They understand what sales really, really is about. Mm -hmm. And so they don't shy away from it. But the majority of them have discomfort. And so the good, the ones who are good at it, is it a natural good? Is it they work on it? Is it that they're others focused? Where do you see those strengths coming into play? Or what are those strengths? Well, they are naturally good at it. Some of them have 
you know, a particular context. So they, they start out, you know, as a, as a new grad with a lot of contacts and, you know, sometimes it's just circumstances, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes it's because they're good networkers and they know how to make those contacts happen. Very often at one, you know, at a firm, there's a go-to person. Okay. So this, this person is good at rainmaking. The other's not so much. And usually it's a natural ability. It's not because they were trained. And it, it sounds like almost when they're networking, whether they've been given a, you know, a contact list or not, that it's not, they're just trying to help. They're, they're almost curious as to like, let's talk a little bit about what's going on. And even am I in a position to help versus this real hard pitch and cornering people to buy? Yeah, exactly. And that's what separates people who are naturally good at this. They don't have the discomfort around sales because they understand that what selling is, is helping. Yeah. It's not pressure. It's not, it's not being pushy. It's not, it's not this old fashioned idea that, you know, people have about sales. And it's a shame that we still have to talk about this because, you know, Glengarry Glenn Ross was many, many years ago (laughs) and, and we just have to be more curious and, and there's still, unfortunately, people that do are salesy and slimy and, and they continue to bring the profession down, which is too bad. But when you were saying there's a discomfort around it, where do you feel this discomfort comes from, Sandra? I think it's a little bit different for different people. You know, even if they're in the same profession, so lawyers, architects, um, and, uh, you know, in other professions, they all have they all have some sales to do in their job. And I think this, the discomfort is different for different individuals. So what I've, I've seen with our clients is some people say, well, I'm introverted. I'm not good at, you know, being out there with people. And I've had clients where they're like, our whole senior senior team, every one of them is, is introverted. Uh-huh. <laughs> what are we supposed to do? And they're, they're, they basically feel like it's impossible for them to sell. Mm-hmm. So they've given up. That, that's one of the challenges. There are, there are a lot of others. You know, one of the biggest ones is they feel like, oh, well, that's unprofessional. I was trained to be a lawyer. I don't want to present as, you know, pushy or salesy. That's counter to the the image that I would like for myself. They just don't see that as a professional identity. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say a third, a third big limitation is that they weren't trained to do this. So you know, if they still have those old ideas about what sales is, it's because they weren't taught differently. There's, there isn't, you know, there isn't a component to uh, their professional education that helps them to understand this better. All, all three great points. And one thing in terms of the introvertedness, uh, they actually make the better sales rep. So <laughs> that's debunked right there. But I wonder if because they're trained in law or architecture, is that their specialty? And they kind of think I'm, deviating or limiting myself by selling it, you know, because my focus, my area of, of influence is this, but at the same time, if you shift your mindset to, well, how do they know what I do? How do they know I'm even in a position to help them if I don't have a, and not sell, if I don't have a conversation. And so I feel that it's a, it's a mindset shift in that nothing's going to take away from your credentials, your professional services that you, the problems you solve, but people don't know you do that. They don't, they are unaware that you can help them if you don't just open your mouth and have a conversation. Be curious. Yeah, I agree totally. And I I think that part of this is not having the confidence to open their mouth and talk about it. 
And hearing that, I would say most people are scratching their heads now saying, you know, lawyers, we've all seen boardroom, we've seen movies, we've seen everything. They, they come across as very type A, very, very confident, very in control. So is this, what, what, what are we, is it a facade? Is it they're wearing armor? What, what do you think it is? Well, you, you know, they may have confidence in the courtroom because they know what they're doing. They're playing a part there that they've had a lot of training for and they are talented at, but this is a very different way of presenting yourself. And, you know, I, I know you talk about this in your business, the idea of being vulnerable, it's more personal, right? How do you, how do you present yourself? That's, that's a different skill. And I, I think part of the discomfort would go away if these professionals would take the time to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, what is, what is the identity that you want to convey? Even just writing an elevator pitch, just getting comfortable with how do you want to present and practice it. Even get on Zoom and record yourself over and over and over and over until you like what you hear and you see. Mm-hmm. And then just the, you know, the natural you will come out because at, at least you won't feel nervous about it. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And and I think vulnerability is huge. And if there's discomfort in selling, there'll be extreme discomfort in vulnerability. But it is that first step of just saying disarming. And, and I had a talk uh, with a lawyer before, and he said more lawyers need to be more curious than authoritative. And, and I think that's just, again, letting go of what they know. We know that you're very intelligent. You know the law inside out. But we need to feel connected as a person. We need you to, we need to feel that you are invested in helping us, whether it's family law, whether it's fraud, whatever it is. But if we don't, and that's what I'm saying, it's a feeling. And so if we can't disarm, get vulnerable, really back to your, um, you know, writing down our job description, write down our purpose. Why did we go to law school? Is it, is it all about the money or do we genuinely want to help people? Were you in a, situation as a child, as a teenager that influenced you, that you can share with these people that allow you to connect and let them see you differently. Because sometimes it's not, oh, this big sales tactics. It's just letting people in a little bit to show that you are human and that you genuinely want to help them. Yeah, exactly. And you know, when, when people are able to do that, their discomfort goes away mm-hmm. because then they because then they realize that what they're doing in playing this sales function is helpful. Yeah. And they're not playing, they're being real. Like they're just talking from the heart. Right. And, and I think I I would say, Sandra, the discomfort goes away from the lawyer themselves as well as their prospect or their customer. And it's just like, Oh my God, you're real here. This is good. Exactly. Exactly. You know what happens in a room when a person is uncomfortable presenting everybody in the room gets uncomfortable right <laughs> american idol when you're watching those cringeworthy you're just like ah i'm uncomfortable for them so yes i know that right. feeling so if if you know if somebody learns how to get real like you put it i you put it very nicely actually if they learn how to get real with how they present themselves mm-hmm. then they can go into these meetings and phone calls and smile and breathe and relax and just be themselves And then guess what? Everybody else in the room will smile and breathe and relax Mm -hmm. and listen. Yeah, Yeah. it's contagious. It's contagious. Mm -hmm. 
But but think about if they were willing to do that first step and disarm and get vulnerable. And then, you know, take an iterative approach and look at, okay, as a result of doing this, I got this far or I got two extra clients or whatever happened, it might make it, we might get buy-in quicker because I can see them saying, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't feel comfortable, but okay, that's, you're making it about you, but think about your customer, your prospect and look at the data. When you did that, this happened like when X, then Y. And I think it, when they see that it might be, it might invite them to lean further into that and get good. As you mentioned, practice your elevator pitch, maybe role play with some of your colleagues and just say, this actually works. So how can we, how can we make it feel normal, human and with emotion? Well, exactly. Do it, practice it, and measure it. So then you can tell yourself you know what works. Mm -hmm. I have a quick story that's about something like this recently. <laughs> I have a, a client that told me um, she had this great opportunity uh, to go and present, to present a, a sales pitch. And she said, you know what? I've got it all together. It's ready to go. But just could you take a quick look before I go? And I looked at it and I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> tell me a little bit about what's going on here. And when I understood, I was like, well, you understand what the client needs. You care about them. Talk about that. And she's like, well, at the end, no, at the beginning, mm -hmm. <laughs> start with that. <laughs> and only at the very, very end, keep one of these slides that you had about your experience. Because at that point, they're going to want to know then at that point, you're not, you're not giving them information that's going to be boring. They really will want, want to understand, okay, are you someone we want to hire? And she got the job right away. Oh, good. She, <laughs> she made the changes. We went through it real quick and she got the job pretty much at the meeting. But how many people, Sandra, are like her and unfortunately didn't have the expertise of someone like yourself to give her that feedback. And unfortunately that's what I see to a lot of is we're always leading with me, 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 my company, my service, and they don't care about that. No. And the irony is that switching it around to not being the me, me, me message is actually easier. Mm -hmm. And so all of that discomfort that she had around selling herself went away because now she's talking about their needs, the client's needs, you know, what she cares about and how she's going to be able to help them. And she gets excited. Now she's interested in presenting instead of uncomfortable. Yeah, I love that. What a great story. And how could you share that just so that other people, like, the beauty of storytelling is people want to see themselves in the story. And so I would imagine if you shared a story like that, that others would say, oh my God, I do that all the time. And I didn't know, <laughs> they might not know that we don't do that, right? But I think what you mentioned, which was great, is that it, removes the discomfort from us because we're, we're not talking about ourselves. But what happens organically is they feel heard. They feel acknowledged. Their next question is, what do you do? Like, how can you help me? Right. And, and then, then you have the opening to share your value proposition, but you're leading to it, not with it. Exactly. And it's a smaller proportion of the meeting time. What can small companies maybe don't have a lot of budget, but they just, just to do implement some of these strategies you're sharing about, role-playing, getting their UVP up and running? Like, what are some things they could start doing, you know, pretty immediately that could start, I guess, addressing the mindset, the discomfort, and then actually letting them see that the results so that they're going to, you know, start automating it, doing more of it? Sometimes it helps to write out scripts. So if you know you're going to be having a phone call 
or you have a regular, um, you know, initial consultation, re regular inquiries. And it's not that you have to stick to the script, but if you have a script, it gives you the opportunity to practice a typical kind of role that you play. So just the writing out of the scripts and practicing of them will take your skills up a, a level. I mean, Karen, you tell me what you think about that. Mm -hmm. I think, I, you know, I think a framework is great, Sandra. And I think for anyone starting new, we need something to fall back on. And so especially when this is uncomfortable, when there's emotion, when there's nerves, it's easy to go off on a tangent, to ramble, to overtalk, or to say nothing. And at least if I can go back and say, okay, opening, um, uncover challenges, you know, talk about impact, talk about risk, and then, you know, closing. I just have, I know where I'm going, that when I get nervous, I can kind of jump back and I know, okay, mom, I'm a point two or point three. So I, I would highly encourage um, a framework of some form. I think sometimes when we do scripts, people memorize it and, and then they get even more flustered because they get thrown off by a word and then it kind of screws it up even more. So I would say some form of framework um, that they just kind of know where they're at at all times that if they go off and they're, you know, they go down a rabbit hole, they know where they're coming back on. Yeah. I like that word framework. So, you know, and, and it, and I picture it like a flow chart. So it's, it's like, okay, if this happens on the call, then, you know, you go left. If this happens, you go right. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to do everything in that one call. So you start to understand how it spreads over time okay, you know, this is how far we go on this call and then we book the next step and it feels less pressure. And just what, what you're saying there, that sounds to me like before we get the script, we need to have some form of a sales process. So how, you know, and this is our process that we follow, but then is it aligned to the way in which our buyers buy? Because that's different. And the whole thing is we have to align it so we're meeting them where they're at when it's when they're unaware that they have a problem or that there's another way of considering it. We're not pitching. We're trying to help them see it that when they move along to the consideration phase, we are sharing a little bit about our solutions because they're at the point where they've, they've acknowledged that they have a problem. But just like you said, we don't need to throw everything into that one phase or that one call because that's the first thing to overwhelm our customer. You know, when we're overwhelmed, we just do nothing. We, we panic and we say no, and we push them away. So I would say um, know where that script falls in. And so backing it up a step was what, what process do you follow? You know, what's that first qualification period? When you have a discovery call, what questions are you asking? How are you getting to impact? And so I, I would say from, in my experience, that's the first place we have to start. Yeah, that's great. And you know, sometimes the, uh, the script could be questions. So rather than delivering this monologue, <laughs> you're asking. Questions, uh, stories, as you've been sharing, data points, and just were, were, were you know, igniting the left and the right brain because everyone's different, but just it becomes more conversational and even recording those calls so that they see a lot of times these, these professionals don't know what good looks like. They've never seen it done before. So they're like, what am I striving for? Like, what is this true North? And so I think that's a big problem is someone needs to show them what good looks like. So when they're on a call and they don't ask this question, they're well aware now of, of, the deal's dead because I didn't ask this question. So let's <laughs> practice that in training, but show them what excellent looks like. Well, that is a terrific segue for the next point I wanted to make. Okay. <laughs> what I have found in the small to mid-size uh, professional practice is that the owner feels like everything rests on them. All these senior level strategic activities are all their problem. 
And really it's up to them to share the responsibilities with others. And in fact, actually they're doing other people a favor and giving them an opportunity to grow. That's leadership development. And this is one way of doing that. You know, uh, first of all, stop discounting all the, the value of the networks of your associates, just because they're younger and they're not, you know, circulating with people at this, at the senior level, that doesn't mean that they may not have uh, valuable contacts and that those net networking activities are, are, are worthwhile. So they should be encouraged to do that and they need some training and they need some exposure and they need that to become part of their official role at the firm. Mm-hmm. So if you have scripts, you have processes, you have training, you have recordings of what actually is a good sales call, mm-hmm. you can start training them. No, I think that's great. And even by delegating or you're, you're empowering your team, like you're giving them something. So even this leader, they can have, uh, they, they can work with their team to define their sales process because they might be very far removed from the actual steps. So what, what better way to empower your team? And then, you know, as you're coming up with your segmentation of accounts, let's talk to Roger. Roger, what are you seeing in here? And, you know, Frank, what are you seeing? And so empower them. And then you have a document that's live or process that's live that you can continually iterate. And when you're having these conversations, you have a framework, but you are, you are timely. You're using their language because you're so immersed in it based on your team. Your team sees they have their deep, wide and high in all these industries. Leverage that. Understanding the real value of having synergies in these related functions. So marketing, marketing sometimes I think in professional practice is confused with sales. You know, I was talking earlier about how they use different labels, but they won't use the word, the word sales. Mm-hmm. Marketing and sales are not the same. They're absolutely not the same thing. If you call them the same thing, it means you're not doing something right. You're just missing something. Uh, that's why the label is important because actually it comes with a whole list of actions. <laughs> mm-hmm. So my thinking is that if you use these related functions to support each other, rather than to be independent silos, then sales becomes easier. Mm-hmm. If, if your marketing um, clearly communicates your competitive edge, clearly communicates your point of difference, puts your professionals up, you know, in the limelight, presents them as thought leaders, then your sales role becomes so much easier. Completely. And it's the oil and water, right? But in your experience, Sandra, what what's happening here? Is it that there is no marketing and sales department, that there's one, not the other, or are they unaware that one actually hands off to the other and they work together? I would say that in some firms, they understand the need for marketing and they understand that they have, they have, you know, inquiries that they have phone calls with, you know, clients who are calling in. They don't call that a sales meeting. Mm-hmm. When they go to a meeting, they don't call it a sales meeting. So I, I think that what that means is there's a lack of recognition of actual uh, sales skills that are needed to perform well in those functions, right? So then they just call the whole thing marketing. <laughs> it's not marketing. <laughs> Uh, salespeople don't like that. Although, you know what, we've become many marketers now. We're wearing many hats. But, but just <laughs> here, Sandra, imagine, you don't like calling it a sales meeting, imagine they took in those inbound meetings, they captured why the, the person reached out to them, what, prob- what stage they're at, what emotion they're feeling, and they shared that with sales. 
all sales has to do is reverse engineer that, spit that out, and that's a, that's an outbounding message tailored to that audience. You're using the voice of the customer. You're 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 putting back exactly what they shared with you. So you're trying to attract others like them. But if there's a disconnect there, you're going to be shooting off messages that's just way above and not breaking through the noise because it's generic, you know, jargon. Yeah, well, that is another issue that happens. The professional jargon gets in the way. Mm. Yeah. So just staying on that for a moment, is that, in your opinion, they're hiding behind that? Or why why do you think that's happening? (laughs) Well, they may be. (laughs) Because, (laughs) you know, I guess with their peers, this happens especially, well, I guess it happens in every profession. But I'm thinking particularly of architecture right now. When architects are presenting to other architects, Mm -hmm. they want to use their language, you know, that's a reflection of their, you know, of how much they studied and how much they know. And, and honestly, they should be proud of that. Mm -hmm. They worked really hard to get to where they are, (laughs) but that's not necessarily the way to impress or connect with, with a client Mm -hmm. who may not know what those terms mean. And when you talk to them, about a whole slew of words they don't understand you're not going to impress them you're going to alienate them so you're going to have a a different presentation for your peers (laughs) yeah no it's a great point and I see it a lot and when I worked in healthcare I saw it a lot too and uh, you know the ones who were able to distill or take these really technical terms and distill it down to layman terms or use a storytelling that's universally understood you still don't lose credibility, but you can, your reach is huge because everybody in the audience, irrespective of their background, understands you versus just looking cool with your peers. Well, we all know what that means because we all study the same stuff. But what about the other 80% of the room and that has no idea what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. They don't understand the words. They don't understand what the, the stories mean if you get too much. So you've, you've lost all opportunity of connecting with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, in the adult principles of learning, no one's going to raise their hand and say, um, nope. I don't I don't understand what that means. They're just going to they'll probably just check out because after a while, the brain's like, I'm tired of searching. I'm, I'm done. Their eyes will glaze over and yeah. they'll be like, I want to find someone that I can talk to. And I mean, that's that's right, because in professional practice, it's all about fit. Totally. And yeah, it's just it almost seems like we need to shine a mirror back to them and say, this is what you're doing. Not, not wrong, but it's all, you know, but if you can implement some of these tactics that we've talked about today, like you're, it's going to be completely different and it's going to be a lot easier, but sometimes there's that lack of awareness. There may not be a reflective period where they're really dissecting after a meeting or doing a, you know, a win loss analysis. Why did I win that one? What was it about the situation, the stage, me, myself, versus why did I lose that? Because when we're unaware, we're just going to repeat the same thing. We don't, we don't know why we're winning or why we're losing. Therefore, we can't repeat or avoid. Well, I, I think this gets into why it matters to use the word sales. Mm-hmm. Because when you, when you actually call it what it is, then you get a little bit more interested in the details of how it works. And, you know, you're raising all of these important factors to consider about what works and what doesn't work. That requires measurement and it generates that awareness. But you don't do that if you don't look at this as a separate function. I like that. It's almost standing up to it and saying, look, we can call it helping. We can call it connecting, but call it what it is. Because just like you said, then you have to look inward and go, what actually is it? What does it entail? What does it involve? Okay, that's what I need to start working on myself. 
Yeah, and I think the same thing applies to building your referral networks, which professionals are very comfortable with as a concept. Mm -hmm. But honestly, that also relates to sales because, you know, you get good at asking for referrals. Mm -hmm. But there's also this layer of understanding what works. So one of my pet peeves (laughs) when it relates to referrals is not understanding the root referrer. So somebody can say, oh, you know, I got this one from Jeff, this one from Sarah, this one from Tom, but they don't understand that actually it was Michael who told Jeff and Tom and Sarah (laughs) Mm -hmm. all about you. So go back to Michael. Where did you meet Michael? Oh, I met Michael on LinkedIn, but I didn't think LinkedIn worked. Yeah. Oh, well, LinkedIn's the source of all of it then. (laughs) Okay. It's prescriptive. Hmm. So we, we've kind of went full circle here, talked about a lot of, you know, that first awareness stage of they're, they're not, they're unaware of, you know, the importance of selling and even the difference between marketing and sales to, you know, now they really need to own the, the title because once they understand what sales is, they're more empowered to actually stand up and do it. So you've given a, a number of, of tactical ways that small business owners can put them into practice immediately. So thank you for that. So is there anything that, that we've missed that, you know, you could say, in the, you know, in the next few days what are things that they could focus on immediately to start either shifting their mindset or actually doing something to really elevate um, sales and their selling strategies within their organization well I would say um, something about mindset I, I think that you know a lot of professionals kid themselves and say oh this isn't really worth my effort whether it's to learn more or get coached or whatever it is to put more more of their time into the sales process and that's kidding themselves and the switch in the mindset that i would suggest is think about any investment of yourself in this process as a way to shape your practice mm-hmm. you know in marketing we talk about the ideal client profile So figuring out who is the bullseye that you really want to work with and describe it and use it in your marketing so that people understand you attract and you filter. If you do that, when you're um, focusing on your sales effort, then what do you do? You're empowering yourself to shape your practice. So instead of just selling to whoever comes in the door, you're using your knowledge and your skills to actually attract a better client profile and um, have a higher close rate with the ones that are a better fit with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is by upskilling yourself and really looking inward, there's a correlation between, that's gonna show if you're the face of the business, that's gonna show in terms of increased uh, customers, revenue, conversions. Right. So instead of dragging yourself through the process because it feels like you have to, but you don't want to, think about it as, as it having the potential to empower you. Yeah. And that, I would say that takes getting out of your comfort zone and, you know, you're creating new neural pathways, but over time through repetition, it gets a little bit easier and you're seeing the results. You're like, you know what, this is actually worth it. Right. And then you're actually at the end of the day going to have a practice that you're happier with. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like that solves a, a number of them because earlier on you mentioned that, you know, they're a working in their business, not on it. They're frustrated and they feel like they're doing everything. So that just what you said sounds like it, it ticks a few of those boxes. Get back in the 
in the driver's seat of that bus. Yes. That's the point. <laughs> yes. Get out of the passenger seat and strap on and get on, get on the driver's seat. I love it. Um, so Sandra, if people want to learn more about, um, yourself, Beckhor management, how they can get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, visit our website or find me on LinkedIn. Okay. And, those, and we'll include all those in the show notes. So I want to just thank you so much for sharing your time, your expertise. This is an industry that perhaps doesn't get a lot of, um, of airtime. So I think it's good to really highlight, you know, architecture, lawyers, um, what really goes on. And, you know, hopefully after this, they'll have a bit of a roadmap as to how they can start, you know, getting out of the situation. It's not going to be overnight, but I think, as you said, you know, we're starting with mindset and then there's incremental things that they can do that will start moving the needle. Yeah. Sounds wonderful. It's always a pleasure to speak to you, Karen. Oh, thanks so much, Sandra. And everyone, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the K2 Sales Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our weekly sales insights are geared towards sales reps, leaders, and small business owners to help navigate the complexity of modern day sales. Our tactical takeaways help you put a plan in place to start creating your own game changing results. Until next time, happy selling. This podcast was produced by Tosh Taylor of the Podcast Hub Productions. Find her online at podcasthub.ca.